on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou. I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. And as usual, we have a lot to talk about. Mm -hmm. You know, not just because we always have a lot to talk about, but because it's Monday, it was kind of an active uh, weekend, and there's a lot in the news. And the funny thing, too, is it's not that we're going to spend the day talking about uh, Ukraine, for example, uh, mm-hmm. it, there's just so much going on all over the world. We're going to talk about Brazil today, mm-hmm. where uh, where Lula and President Bolsonaro are both officially campaigning now. Bolsonaro seems to be pulling a Trump mm-hmm. and already saying, well, if I lose, it's because the vote was stolen from me. Right. That's just here we go again. We, and, go you know, again. we said before the 2000. 20 election when Donald Trump first said, if I lose, it's because it was stolen from me Mm -hmm. that the guy's going to cause damage to our electoral system based on nothing. And that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about the New York Times celebration of the Azov Battalion. No surprise there. I love those guys. They do. So does CNN. Mm -hmm. I hate to say, we're going to talk about uh, Russia, Turkey, Ukraine. We're going to talk about China. And uh, Nancy Pelosi's apparent trip to uh, Taiwan. Mike Pompeo jumping into this was the the funniest twist so far. Well, no, the funniest twist is Joe Biden going, I don't know what's going on, but the military doesn't like it. But who knows what's going to happen? Second funniest is Mike Pompeo jumping in there. Just obviously just so he can call Democrats soft on China. If Nancy Pelosi doesn't go. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, You know, Joe Biden's reaction and Nancy Pelosi's insistence on going mm-hmm. opened the door for the Republicans mm-hmm. to make legitimate, uh, you know, political allegations. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. We're going to talk to Kevin Camps later in the show, too, from uh, Beyond Nuclear. He's the uh, nuclear watchdog. And Kevin's always a fascinating person to have on the show. Mm-hmm. But before we get to those issues, we're going to we have some other uh, stories. Yeah. Myanmar overnight executed so far at least four pro-democracy um, activists. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of them were members of parliament. Uh, one was a popular rapper mm-hmm. and was very popular among uh, young people. This is exactly what the United Nations has been warning the military junta in Myanmar to not do. Yeah. Uh, not only did they scoop people up off the streets who were demonstrating peaceably, um, but now they've begun to kill them. Yeah, it's awful. Just terrible. Um, Jill Biden was heckled. Oh, man. I, was, I got a laugh out of it. I did, too. And then I sort of feel bad about it. Like, we're, John, we're part of the problem. We're yeah. not, you know, we can't have, this is why we can't have nice things, because we laugh. But I mean, it was She was pretty. just getting an ice cream cone. Yeah. She but wasn't still, bothering anybody. People don't like Joe Biden. Like, no, they people don't. People really don't. There's or, a, I don't know. It, it, like, it's not just the right wing that doesn't like Joe Biden, really. Yeah. And, uh, no, no, you're right. It's not just the right wing that doesn't like Joe Biden. We're going to talk about uh, this new New York Times poll later in the week, mm-hmm. but there's a, a poll that was just released in the last hour mm-hmm. uh, saying that 54% of Democrats don't want Joe Biden to run for president mm-hmm. and 52% of Republicans don't want Donald Trump to run for president. Who do we want? Someone, someone else. else. Someone else. For the love mm-hmm. of God, everyone wants someone else. And I think it speaks, you know, it speaks to more than like the personal unpopularity 
of these guys. Like people do. I think fundamentally, a lot of people recognize that they want they want something else. Yes. Than this uh, system that both parties are perpetuating. Yes. But it's hard to articulate that. You know, it is it's sort of it's it, mm-hmm. it is hard to articulate that if you haven't had a lot of time to just sort of like, th- you know, to to come to some kind of level of political education. And so you just know that these are the two parties that exist. There can be no others. That's and I'm it. frustrated with with both of them. Yes. I guess we just need a new representative of these two. You know, right. If these two columns upholding just not the these guys. Yeah. You know, there was a terrific article yesterday in The New York Times talking about the gubernatorial race in Texas. Mm-hmm. And they were saying that Governor, Governor Abbott uh, is uh, increasingly unpopular. The electrical grid is unreliable. Abortion has been uh, has been banned. Uh, there are disagreements over the border. They're just going on and on and on about all the the problems that Texas is facing. And um, and Beto O'Rourke is within five percentage points in the latest polls. Mm-hmm. But then they went on to say that as unpopular, <clears throat> excuse me, as Governor Abbott is, Beto O'Rourke's pretty unpopular, too. Mm-hmm. And the Democrats say every two years that this is the year that Texas turns blue. Yeah. Right. And they've been saying this for 25 years. Yeah. And it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. And it's for the reason that you just cited. This is the system that we've given ourselves. Mm-hmm. We all hate it mm-hmm. and nobody's willing to change it. Yeah. And because they're, a, you know, it's a it's a sort of a, a virtuous cycle, right? They uphold each other. That's right. Yeah. Um, I want to keep an eye. We're not talking about this today, but I am interested in I want to keep an eye on and we'll, we'll probably talk about later in the week. Uh, Pope Francis's visit to Canada. Yeah, Yeah, very important. uh, What is he? He's calling it like a tour of penitence or something. Mm -hmm. He's there to to apologize, Uh, which, you know, is something. But, uh, you know, I'm not personally, I'm not enormously satisfied with apologies that are just apologies. I mean, I am not a member of a community that needs this apology. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to try and speak for what other people should want. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it does seem like without any action, it is just sort of more, you know, it's like land acknowledgements. Like, okay, what does this mean? Right. Cause now mm-hmm. it's just a way for you to make yourself look good and maybe feel bad for a minute. I don't think that uh, Francis is necessarily primarily driven by a desire to look good. Who knows? Uh, but it does seem, it doesn't, it doesn't seem particularly meaningful without, you know, so, something some kind of concrete efforts to, yeah. to make some form of reparations, whatever that might Agreed. be. Agreed. Hey, yeah. did you happen to see the news over the weekend, too, that Francis approved a wiretap on a cardinal? No. <laughs> what? That's great. You know, it's funny. It's like, Ever since I was a little kid, you know, when you envision the is Pope. Pope Francis, is he like the head of intelligence for Vatican City? Like he must he, be. He, so you'd go to him, you like take uh, you a know, warrant that, to the Pope? That's actually a legitimate question. Right. I, I Who approves the wiretap? I, I don't know, but they said that it went all the way up to the Pope, that there's this cardinal who's who's uh, crooked and they think he's, uh, he's stealing money and mm-hmm. laundering this money. And so they... It, they all went all the way to the Pope himself and he approved a wiretap. That must on, be it. Yeah. I mean, someone's got to govern the place, right? <laughs> when you're a little kid, you think the Pope, you know, sits there all day and prays and blesses people and walks around in his white yeah, robes and stuff. It's a big bureaucracy. It's a, it's a big very bureaucracy powerful, and wealthy people bureaucracy. are flawed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. very interesting. I thought it was kind of fun. I do like, I like a little of, uh, you know, like arcane Vatican drama. <laughs> it is, it is fun. Um, 
I want to ask you about something, John. This is, of course, a this is a theme, right? A, a theme in political reporting that is uh, Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris, just every every yeah. time she grabs a stick, she gets the short end. And so I want to ask about this, the latest New York Times opinion piece uh, that says, what is it? it? It's titled Kamala Harris is stuck. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it starts out by presenting uh, Eisenhower and Nixon. Right. Yes. Where Eisenhower, who, who barely knows Nixon, doesn't particularly like him. Yes. But feels uh, that it's very important for the vice president to be prepared to step into the job of president and so gives him quite a lot to do and sets him on a deliberate path to prepare him for the presidency, including, of course, this great 68-month tour uh, and all the opportunities that it gives Nixon and uh, Pat Nixon to meet world leaders, right? And it contrasts that with what Kamala Harris has been given to do, which it says— doesn't include the sort of immersive experiences or sustained high-profile tasks that would deepen and broaden her expertise in ways Americans could see and appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, she's been given what, again, this writer terms intractable issues like migration and voting rights, <laughs> where she has not shown demonstrable growth and leadership, not something you want to see on your performance review. I'll say. Um, and hit or miss trips like her foray in Central America a year mm-hmm. ago, where she said, do not come. Uh, and then what they are calling a more successful, uh, leading a more successful delegation to meet the new president of the uh, the UAE. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's sort of making the case that there's little evidence that the White House actually wants to prepare her for the role. And instead, what she's doing is is being sent out to, to whip up the Democratic base uh, and that she's not even actually particularly well connected with the White House. She was supposed to, you know, she thought she was going to have these regular lunches with the Secretary of State. That didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, I mean, I really, I I really don't like this sort of line of uh, analysis that wrings its hands and says the president's not getting what she hoped to get out of this internship. The vice president's not Mm -hmm. getting it. You know, she's not being given opportunities to shine. I do think fundamentally that's a backward way to consider this position, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like the, the highest role in public service you can have, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not about like, I hope to come to this job so I can improve my skills at X or Y and Z, right. but rather I want to do this job so I can put to use my skills at X or Y and Z. You know what I mean? That thing you're never supposed to say on your resume. Right. I want to come here so I can learn, right? right? Why should we, why should we think that's appropriate for the vice president? Yes. But you know, I also do recognize that there are like traditions in in governance and people get picked to be, to, you know, to take on this role for reasons other than their like managerial prowess mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to ask, what do you think? What do you think? Is Kamala Harris, is she really, you know, being given short shrift by the White House and that is why she's failing? Or is Kamala Harris just, I mean, they are at least giving her important issues. And issues that yeah. the, the Biden that Biden campaigned on and right. promised she was to make to be change. The immigration czar, remember? They promised. They made a lot of promises mm-hmm. on immigration, right? Yeah. Uh, voting rights. Yes. I mean, com- that's been like a huge rallying cry. Right. Yes, of course, they're big problems, but like, I think there are several different issues at play here. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, the the role of the vice president has changed over the years. Uh, it's true that that Dwight Eisenhower brought. Richard Nixon along because he saw something in Nixon. You're right. He didn't like Nixon Mm -hmm. and Nixon really was not his first choice, but he recognized that Nixon had skills that both he and the country needed. 
And so he made Nixon into a very active vice president. Uh, Time was when a person running for president chose a vice president that would bring balance to the ticket. Mm -hmm. That's changed. And now the candidate chooses someone as as a running mate who's not going to uh, do damage Mm. to the ticket. Right. Yeah. Isn't that awful? Yeah, it really um, is. It's like it just you can feel the the narrowing of the aperture of yeah. political possibility. Yes. Right. Absolutely yeah. right. Absolutely right. Um, secondly, there's a 50-50 Senate. And whether she likes it or not, Kamala Harris is the tiebreaker in the Senate. Mm-hmm. She's already set a new record, a record going back to George Washington. Um, by casting more votes in the Senate than any other vice president in American history. Mm. So she has to stick around Washington when Congress is in session because she's frequently called upon to cast these tie-breaking votes. Yeah. And they knew this. They knew this they knew uh, it. on Inauguration Day. That's yeah. right. They knew it. Uh, number three, uh, she just doesn't have very much relevant experience. No, you know, she was the attorney general of California mm-hmm. and um, she was very briefly a U.S. senator. One term. Yeah. Uh, one, not even one full term. Yeah. And and so she doesn't bring a whole lot to the table. Joe Biden was not a governor. Joe Biden was a senator. Mm-hmm. So the experience that he had in public service was the same as hers, but times 10, mm-hmm. because he had been in the Senate from 1972 to 2009. And then he was vice president. And then he was vice president yeah. for eight years. Yeah. So to tell you the truth, I think the bottom line here is that she was a bad choice. Yeah. She really didn't bring a lot to the table. And, you know, I, I made a joke a couple of months ago on the show where I said she's the uh, the Dan Quayle of our generation. Mm-hmm. But that really wasn't a joke. She actually is the Dan Quayle of our generation. I remember when I was when I was working um, at the CIA on the analytics side, we had a request from Dan Quayle's office for a classified biography on a name. Mm-hmm. Right. And for the life of us, we. We couldn't figure out. He said he was meeting this person in the Middle East Hmm. and uh, we couldn't figure out who in the world he was. I called the vice president's office and I said, listen, I need some clarification. He asked for this classified bio and I just can't find anything in our files. It turned out it wasn't a person. It was the name of the building that he was meeting in. Oh, yeah. That was Dan Quayle. (laughs) That was Dan Quayle. And I'm afraid that... uh, that Kamala Harris isn't a whole lot better. Man. Yeah, I just, uh, I, I really, I, I have no patience for this, uh, you know, this internship program isn't giving me what I thought it was going to give me kind yeah. of reporting. I just, yeah. sorry. I'm worried about it. You know, it. yeah. Because, um, because Joe Biden's almost 80 years old. Right. And, oh, yeah. And we don't really know the, the state of his health. And I cannot remember off the top of my head whether in the, you know, these polls where everyone is getting beaten by someone else. Right. I don't remember right. if Kamala Harris is slightly more or slightly less popular as a possible uh, 2024 candidate. But it, the difference is not very great. Right. No. Uh, and I think it's possible that she's even that they want her even less than Biden. I think that, that was the latest number yeah. that yeah. I saw. She's more unpopular than Joe Biden is. Yeah. We uh, should probably take a break and and come back and talk about Brazil, but we should probably mention that uh, over the weekend, the World Health Organization declared monkeypox to be a public health emergency of international concern, which is the the biggest red flare that the organization can send up. It is interesting that uh, this 
WHO Emergency Committee for Monkeypox didn't come to a unanimous consensus as to whether they should declare this emergency, but the director general has some discretion as to what what he can do. And so he sees it as an opportunity to bring bring the disease under control, according mm-hmm. to a, a spokesperson for the organization. So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm a little concerned that the messaging remains uh, monkeypox only a danger for generally speaking men who have sex with men. I really think like, I I don't know how people expect that to continue and expect, you know, did we learn nothing from the AIDS crisis? Exactly. Exactly. It's very strange to me, but you know, we'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens next. All right. We're going to take a quick break here on political misfits and come back and talk about what's going on in Brazil and uh, whether and what kind of ripples that will have for the the broader continent. Mm-hmm. All that coming up here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and uh, I wanted to talk about Brazil because there's been a lot happening uh, in Brazil, and we have been following events in some other South American countries pretty closely, but we haven't checked in on the biggest nation Mm -hmm. on that continent for Mm -hmm. a while. Uh, In the past week, we've had Lula da Silva officially nominated to run as presidential candidate for his workers' party. I mean, of course— we knew this was going to happen. Yes. Uh, and Very President popular. Jair Bolsonaro just today uh, officially launched his own campaign and has been escalating his efforts to convince Brazilians and outside observers that the country's election system is unreliable. Uh, also got them all together to uh, to cough all over them, it seems. <laughs> so we are joined now by Natalia Urban. She's a Brazilian journalist at Brazil Wire. Natalia, thank for thank you for joining us. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here today and especially talking about Brazil because indeed so much has been going on in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so talk to us about this this invitation last week to a bunch of diplomats to hear more stories about weaknesses in Brazil's uh, electoral technology. This was not Bolsonaro's first move to sow doubt. And so, uh, you know, tell us what he's trying to do and whether he's had any success so far. To be fair, Bolsonaro has been discrediting the Brazilian electoral system since uh, Lula regained his political rights Mm -hmm. because he knows the only reason why he's in the presidency today is because Lula wasn't allowed to run Mm -hmm. because of uh, Lava Jato, Lawfare, etc., and um, Bolsonaro has been trying to say that even his own election has been a fraud because he should be uh, the winner in the first turn, not the second one. Mm. But because of electoral fraud, they had to do a second round. But he has, he has never showed any evidence. It's uh, very similar to ha- what has happened in the United States, because as everybody knows, Eduardo Bolsonaro is uh, Steve Bannon's uh, chosen one mm-hmm. to like run uh, the movement in South America. Mm-hmm. And he has been taking some tips from his master's playbook. Mm-hmm. 
And so, I mean, the the contrast that's always drawn here is that uh, Trump never had the support of the American military, whereas Bolsonaro is really seen to have their backing. And so I kind of wonder if he does, uh, you know, I wonder if you think Bolsonaro's military support is such that he could really contest these results uh, and have the military back him, even if it's just sort of transparently not true. Um, and then in that case, you know, I wonder who who is his real audience here, right? Who who is Bolsonaro trying to convince that these uh, these results might be fraudulent? Because I, I imagine there are some pretty important stakeholders outside of Brazil that he's going to want to convince to at least sort of squint and look the other way. First of all, a uh- Bolsonaro doesn't have the full support of military. He mm-hmm. has the support of some sectors of the Brazilian military. Um, other sectors say that what Bolsonaro has been doing uh, is not just like discrediting Brazil internationally, but also like uh, putting the armed forces in a, a path mm-hmm. that they don't want to be anymore, which is the path that is related to coups, that is related to dictatorial regimes. And this is not, and I'm not defending them. They are awful. <laughs> they mm-hmm. are an awful institution, but it's not a unanimous. Uh, to have Bolsonaro as their president, mm-hmm. nor uh, people thinking that the Brazilian electoral system is flawed or that uh, we should have like Bolsonaro as our master of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I would say that the people that Bolsonaro has been catering besides the military and the police forces and uh, all those like the jobs gun fanatics <laughs> are the evangelicals and the Christians this uh-huh. weekend. Mm. Bolsonaro was uh, a few hours actually before announcing officially his candidacy. He was at the March for the for Jesus and mm. um He's always been going to those events and like saying that Lula wants to make all the children, um, I don't know, LGBTQ plus. He <laughs> mm-hmm. wants to destroy the basis of the traditional family. He wants to, I don't know, pervert everybody. Mm-hmm. So and. Of course, he always likes to say that Lula is extremely disrespectful towards Christians, mm-hmm. which is a lie, um, especially because uh, we know for sure that um, one of the biggest uh, supporters of Bolsonaro, a congressman from Sao Paulo, he has been uh, he had he's uh, responding to uh, he's being sued by the state chamber of Sao Paulo for saying that the pope was a communist and <laughs> not a Christian. So, <laughs> uh, yes, they are like, uh, you are not, I'm, I'm more Christian than the Pope. So they have like a level of uh, uh, um, insanity is too much. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing is like, he, he keeps like catering for those groups who are like um, more like traditionally uh, conservatives but what Bolsonaro is doing in Brazil is not conservative at all. He's like putting the country in a, a path that is like a post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. past <laughs> because like people don't have food, people don't have health. Uh, uh, we have like over a million deaths, uh, um, half million deaths. Sorry, uh, I think we are in 70,000 uh, deaths mm-hmm. uh, regarding the pandemic. Uh, people don't have, uh, he cut all the, the, the popular benefits that we have in the country, like social benefits. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
those people who Bolsonaro has been trying to talk uh, about the situation and like uh, calling them to vote for him are the ones that are also being affected by his decisions, uh, especially his economical decisions. Mm -hmm. So um, it's difficult to say um, at the moment, I would say that the way he has been talking and the things he has been saying, especially regarding the radicalization of people, he's talking only with a small fraction of his supporters, those who want to have like a mm -hmm. January 6th repeated in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Can I ask, is this appeal to uh, evangelicals? Is this is this the influence of Steve Bannon? Because that's kind of his thing, too. Or is this just, you know, uh, a meeting of minds? You know, I don't want to suggest that, you know, very possible Bolsonaro could have come up with this all on his own. No, no. Um, actually, like many of their um, um, tactics, I would say that they have been um, spread not just uh, between Bannon and like Bolsonaro, but like between Bolsonaro and other leaders from uh, South America, from even Ibero-America, because now we have like Vox being like Bolsonaro's biggest supporters within the European countries. Mm -hmm. um, there's also like Bolsonaro ongoing support to Javier Milei in Argentina to be like the next president. Mm -hmm. So they have been like exchanging tips, you know, oh, this worked well here. Like if you do the same, but like to adapt to your country, you have like some results. Mm. And the fact is like in the past, uh, the biggest evangelical church in Brazil, uh, uh, the universal church of the kingdom of God, um, they have been supporters of PT. But um, after the coup, they decided to support um, um Bolsonaro and mm. like to, to, to find a new alternative that would not just like suit their um um religious uh um intents but also like his political intents as well because uh, in brazil we have we do have like a evangelical caucus in mm -hmm. in wow. the congress so yes it's really bizarre and they are like really really horrible people <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I want to talk. I mean, I, I want to talk about what happens if, you know, it, it, as seems inevitable, uh, at least according to polls now, if if Lula wins. But since you mentioned, you know, what is happening to the to the people of Brazil saying, you know, people have less food than than they had before. People have trouble accessing health care. And then, of course, you had at the end of last week, this raid on a favela complex in Rio that killed 18 people, uh, where the reports that I saw, there were 400 police officers who uh took part in this raid on on what they were calling, you know, an organized crime uh, unit that other people are calling a massacre. And, you know, I mean, it, this is not the first uh, deadly raid uh, the Brazilian police have done. It, it doesn't seem like it'll be the last. But I wonder if, uh, you know, if that has noticeably changed under uh, Bolsonaro's administration and really, you know, whether very much would change from a, a political change at the top to affect policing culture or if there is just a way more, if that's a much bigger project. Well, um, they are actually disguising massacres as police operations. Um, they have never, um, they were like killing people that were just like living there. They were not even involved with anything. They just lived in the favelas and they were like denying uh, help for those like the civilians who have been shot. This has been reported by uh, International Amnesty. 
that the police denied uh, uh, to give those people like a medical care, mm-hmm. denied and arrested those who were trying to help the wounds. Uh, so um, this is not the first. Bi- Actually, this is the second biggest operation that has happened in the past year. We had one last year that killed 28 people also in Rio de Janeiro. And the, the government responds. This is something that is unfortunately part of Brazil, Mm -hmm. but the government response now with Bolsonaro has been like, oh, um, let's praise the police because they are making um, our lives better. They are like cleaning the streets for us. Um, He like, uh, he and his supporters and his uh, uh, allies, uh, 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 the, the people who are in allyship with him, they like to make jokes like, oh, we are canceling another uh, birth certificate. Like they were like denying those people that the victims humanity. So um, it's a, a, a an ongoing um, extermination plan mm. against the people in the favelas, which are the majority of them being Afro-Brazilians. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's also a big racial component on those massacres as well. And how much changes if uh, if Lula wins, as again, uh, all the polls would would have us, you know, all the polls predict. Right. What changes in Brazil with another term? Well, uh, what Lula likes to say a lot, he's not like promising uh, rainbows and unicorns for people. Mm -hmm. He's actually saying like um, um, many of uh, it's the saddest part is like many of the advantages we had when the PT, the, the Workers' Party, was empowered, had been completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the main one being um, the Fomizero, the program that uh, was internationally rewarded for like feeding people. Mm-hmm. Now we have 30 million Brazilians that are uh, living in food insecurity. Mm-hmm. So Lula said that his first uh, uh, decision will be I have to feed people again. Mm, So I think it's a good start, especially in a country with like continental dimensions like Brazil. You have to give people food. People don't have food. So people have need food. Then people need a a decent hospitals. So let's uh, take care of uh, um, the the hospitals as well. So people need jobs. So let's start like making, uh, 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 creating Mm -hmm. jobs within uh, um, state companies that Bolsonaro has been trying to privatize, by the way. Mm -hmm. So let's start to creating jobs. Let's try, uh, let's start to like giving fundings to the public universities to like give uh, to make more people qualified let's make uh let's give like housing let's give land to the people so they can like uh plant uh and like feed the people in the cities who are uh, actually starving um let's give them like housing so they don't have to be homeless so i think it's very basic but Brazil needs the basic um, at the moment because they don't have the basic with Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro uh, stripped uh, people from dignity in Brazil. Uh, So I would say that many uh, uh, now uh, Brazilians are basically having a a choice that is like, 
you have a choice of dignity and a choice of death mm -hmm. because this is what it has been happening and not just with COVID and police violence, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, with poverty, with uh, a lack of perspective, like people really don't know what to do. People are really desperate at the moment. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you what, what it would mean for the region uh, to to have Lula back in power, because, of course, you know, in the in the last 10 months, we've had leftists, uh, you know, uh, to some degree or another, right, of some stripe or another. Uh, but we've had leftists win in, in Chile, in Colombia, also in, in Central America, in Honduras. We have the uh, reversal of the attempted coup or the coup in Bolivia last year and a, a leftist government in there again. Uh, and, you know, we, we have uh, leftist leaders in um, Peru as well. I think I'm blanking on one. But, uh, you know, I, I think I, I wonder what it would mean to have, uh, you know, uh, perhaps a bunch of sympathetic governments across uh, across that continent right now. Is there the possibility uh, for, you know, some some more serious, more effective, I guess, regional coordination? I think especially the change of government in Colombia, I feel it like could be very significant. First of all, it's important to remember that Lula is one of the greatest of Latin America. He's the only mm -hmm. one that's still standing. Uh, he's from the generation of uh, um, Hugo Chavez, Nestor Kirchner, Rafael Correa, mm -hmm. and Lula's still there with like the possibility of coming back to power. And and for him, um, he was one of the founders of the Foro de São Paulo, which is uh, the biggest mechanism of integration of the left in the whole Latin America. Mm -hmm. um, and now, even though Lula is not the president, and this is like news, um, yeah. uh, tomorrow, Francia Marquez is going to Brazil to meet with Lula and Dilma to talk about like future projects that of like integration between the uh, uh, um, the South American countries. So even though he's not a president yet, mm -hmm. uh, he's already being consulted by those who are like new in power about what, like what to do and mm -hmm. how should we proceed at the moment? Because uh, this is something that is extremely strong within the Workers' Party mm -hmm. uh, and with, especially with Lula, that is like the integration with uh, South American countries, with Latin America, because we are close, we are not just like closest, uh, close to them uh, geographically. We are close to them culturally. We are like close to them economically, mm -hmm. politically. So we have to all work together so we can all prosper together. And uh, and to also to negotiate uh, uh, in a, a, a more a, a, a in, in more equal terms with the European Union, with the United States, with like all the global northern countries. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that um, Lula's uh, re-election is not just like something that Brazilians are like really yearning, but also like Latin Americans in general are very like hopeful because they know that we would have like the strengthening of like bricks. We would mm -hmm. have like a, a, a new mechanisms, maybe uh, the the refoundation of UNASUR, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a, a, a bigger integration within the countries to like go through those difficult 
uh, moments that the whole world is going through at the moment. Mm -hmm. Like there is like an international crisis. Like we have to work together between us to deal with that international crisis. Because first of all, we have our own crisis that is like inequality, uh, the wounds of colonialism, uh, um, institutional racism. Mm -hmm. um, and like we have to defeat those issues before like uh, trying to uh, pretend that one day we can have the things like uh, Europe has or mm -hmm. like um, that. So like we have to work with ourselves before like working with them. Mm -hmm. So I think this is the, the, the greatest thing that Lula has. And also uh, Brazil would have, again, have that uh, big voice in the UN uh, and like the, all the international uh, um, geopolitical mechanisms mm -hmm. because like Brazil defended many countries in many moments. Like you mentioned Honduras. Mm -hmm. um, it's important to remember that when Lula was in power and Honduras went through the coup against the president Zelaya, uh, Brazil gave him asylum in the Brazilian embassy because Lula uh, refused uh, to let a fellow uh, a comrade to be killed by those who Lula was correct in the end, like working mm -hmm. for the imperialism. So mm -hmm. uh, he would be, he is someone that is willing to like fight for uh, um, our siblings in other Latin American countries as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, because we are talking about, you know, the, the possibility of some uh, expanded cooperation between these governments, especially the sort of block of sympathetic governments that you can see if you look at a map. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what kind of forces exist to try to maintain those those borders, right? And and make sure each country is just sort of dealing unilaterally with, with the U.S. Or, or with the EU and not with each other. Well, um, basically, we have, uh, I would say, the biggest uh, problem right now um, looking at the point of like Brazil would be like the, the mainstream media that has been like uh, uh, defending that Brazil has to like isolated um, itself from the rest of Latin America um, and like to ignore those what they say uh, romantic sentiments of like a uh, union with Latin America like it's funny because like they like to talk like it's something so uh, uh, um, almost like fiction to be like uh, united without the influence of the United States mm -hmm. and we know that they do that because they are being financed by like uh organizations within the United States and within uh, um, European Union uh, to do to do so to say those things and mm -hmm. to prevent the, that integration because when those countries have that integration they have less power um, against us mm -hmm. so uh, it's easy for them to control someone like bolsonaro and not control someone like Juma mm -hmm. the, the main reason we have to remember that the main reason Juma suffered the coup uh, uh, it was like a, a few uh, a year before I guess it was when Obama was caught spying on her and now we have like more evidence showing that uh, the people who were within the Brazilian government that uh, supported the coup against Juma mm -hmm. uh, uh, like to say that Juma was someone that uh, had deep mistrust on everybody and was not someone that was friendly towards uh, uh, negotiate with those organizations. Mm -hmm. And no, she wasn't. Uh, she was like, uh, um, just like 
Lula as well. He's someone that is like willing to work well. He says, I will sell to like negotiate, buy from whomever. But in my country, the only people who should have a saying are the Brazilians, mm -hmm. and Dilma is the same. So when you have uh, this the kind of mentality uh, in Brazil, a big country, uh, a, a country that has like so much that the world needs in terms of like um, imports and like exports, um, you have like some sort of power, and that power makes you like easier for you like to defend your like. Little brothers, for mm -hmm. example, like the, the way with Bolivia, which like Brazil helped a lot in terms of like the negotiation with the Bolivian gas mm -hmm. and uh, um, the exportations within uh, the gas to other countries and Peru as well. So Lula was someone that was always like there to make sure that all countries in Latin America were being treated fairly by mm -hmm. the imperial powers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens, what takes shape after October. That was Natalia Urban. She's a Brazilian journalist. Uh, Natalia, do you want to tell our listeners where they can go to look for your most recent work? They can go to Brazil Wire. Um, it's brazilwire.co. Mm -hmm. um, they can also follow me on Twitter. It's um, at Urban Natalia. Um, no spaces. And um, I'm always like uh, posting news, not just about Brazil, but also about like the rest of Latin America there as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits, come back and talk a little more about China. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. here with John Kiriakou. And as promised, we're talking a little bit more about China. Uh, what do Chinese media and government are saying about Nancy Pelosi's maybe trip to Taiwan next month? Uh, I want to talk about an interesting report on Chinese military aid and how there isn't too much of it out there. Uh, and uh, talk a little bit about the U.S. once again uh, calling China the aggressor in the South China Sea. We're joined for all these conversations by Cynthia Chung. She's president and co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation, and she's a writer for the Strategic Culture Foundation. Thanks for joining us again, Cynthia. Glad to be here. I want to start with this report in The Diplomat about Chinese military aid or the lack of it that I thought was very interesting for the perspective that it reveals. Uh, the, the story starts off by saying, uh, you know, the, the role of Western military aid to Ukraine and its fight against Russia has highlighted military aid as a critical part of broader U.S. security cooperation efforts. Uh, amid strategic competition with China, one might assume that Beijing would have a large military aid program as part of its own approach to winning friends and influence through military diplomacy. This is not a safe assumption. And the story goes on to say China has given five, listen to this figure, John, $560 million in total military aid between 2013 and 2018. So that's military aid. That's not arms sales. This right. is aid. aid. The U.S. in that same period, 
35 billion. Uh, and so, you know, first of all, wow. when you look at that, you, you, this this article is sort of saying like China's missing an opportunity here to uh, to, to in its own influence campaign. I can only imagine if China was giving giving away billions of dollars of weapons uh, to countries around the globe and including literally around the United States, mm-hmm. they would be accused of fueling conflicts and and destabilizing the region. Absolutely. But when the United States does it, we are we are creating security. And so I, I wanted to ask you about this report, Cynthia, in, in the context of this growing fear of China's soft power. You know, uh, we got lots of stories last year about how oh, China's going to win friends by donating vaccines and China's going to make itself look good by hosting the Olympics when like nobody else wants to pay for that. Um, and so the article concludes that because the U.S. has so dramatically outspent China on military aid that the U.S. retains advantages in competition. I wonder if we should also see this report and, and recognize that China is actually not seeking to compete in flooding the world with weapons, but but trying to build relationships in other ways. And so I wonder, you know, what you see in this huge contrast in military aid and, and also in how it is being reported. Yeah, I, w- I would like to first off uh, remind uh, the listeners that there are 750 U.S. military bases stationed abroad. Mm-hmm. China has only one military base, which is located in Djibouti, Ethiopia. Um, so, you know, this report, it was bringing up that the African Union was one of the the, the larger uh, receivers of military aid from China. And this is uh, specifically in defense of the Belt and Road infrastructure projects. So, even when China is sending this sort of thing, it's ultimately the ultimate goal is for uh, infrastructure development and that these Belt and Road uh, initiatives uh, have had to be very secretive because if there is any kind of information that's leaked out, there is almost certainly a terrorist attack that occurs. And, you know, Ethiopia is a very strategic uh, location in Africa, which if there is a massive increase in trade to that port, Africa can really flourish and prosper, not just Ethiopians. And this is why there was a color revolution that occurred there several months ago, which even um, it was leaked that attendees of a Zoom call with the U.S. State Department were in uh, direct contact and were were responsible for the coordination of the Tigray offensive against the Ethiopian government. Mm-hmm. And this is what you see the United States doing all throughout Asia mm-hmm. and Africa, is that any separatist group, no matter how small they are, they're not representative of the population in any uh, degree. They pump large amounts of funding, weapons, and training to these groups so that they cause trouble. And a lot of this would not exist if there wasn't any kind of American interference, Mm -hmm. Um, supporting extremist groups that attack their own people, call it violence, uh, with violence, and then they call it freedom. Mm -hmm. And then this is like romanticized in Western media constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would like to also uh, bring up that this whole Sri Lanka crisis too, where China is being uh, blamed for the the debt crisis of Sri Lankans. Right. Even Western media has to acknowledge that China is responsible for 10% of Sri Lanka's debt Mm -hmm. and that the top international sovereign bondholders, which make up, I think, about 47% of the debt are from uh, holders like 
BlackRock, HSBC, which is a London-based uh, mm-hmm. bank from back from the days of the Opium Wars, J.P. Morgan Chase, and 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 so forth. This is this is what is responsible for Sri Lanka's debt, mm-hmm. uh, IMF-type conditionalities. So again. Every time you see that there is some kind of uh, sabotage for any kind of progress happening in these areas, it's initiated by the United States. Um, and I think that what you just brought forward, that the amount of spending that China actually uses on destructive means, um, it's not there. They're investing in things that are going to benefit everybody, including the Chinese, which is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. No, it is pretty it is pretty remarkable and, and pretty transparent these efforts to say, you know, yeah, it's chi- China's responsible for the debt crisis in Sri Lanka, although China has 10% of of the debt that that country is uh collapsing underneath, you know, General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, just yesterday is in Indonesia saying it's China's military that is becoming dangerous and aggressive uh in the Pacific, right? So complaining that Chinese aircraft are intercepting more western uh, aircraft and ships in the Pacific. And that's the problem. Uh, you have China, of course, for its part, saying it doesn't want the South China Sea to become a fighting arena. And so, you know, at this point, you know, we we risk sort of belaboring this point, I think. But really, it is it is pretty remarkable how the United States has has managed to really get everyone to go along with this idea that, you know, Ch- China having its own ships and air force around its borders is somehow the aggressor in these situations. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is quite ridiculous, but I think that people are are possibly just not fully thinking about the the geography of mm-hmm. like the context of what's being spoken about. So, you know, just last month, Prime Minister Trudeau also called China's actions toward Canadian planes as provocative and irresponsible. And if you just listen to that as a title and you're not thinking about the context, you're like, oh my God, that sounds so scary. But then when you look at the context, you realize where were these Canadian planes? Mm -hmm. They were flying over the Pacific Ocean to enforce sanctions against North Korea. First off, off, why are there Canadian military planes (laughs) enforcing Mm -hmm. sanctions on North Korea? And now, second of all, we're going to say that China's being provocative and irresponsible for being in international airspace that surrounds their own country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's becoming uh, very ridiculous. And this is the same thing that's going on with Taiwan. Taiwan, um, which, by the way, the U.S. Department of State also officially recognizes Taiwan on their site. Everyone can look it up on the internet. Um, they recognize Taiwan as part of China. They say uh, verbatim, they are not for Taiwanese independence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet the United States is sending weapons to Taiwan. Um, people have to really think about that. Taiwan has been claiming that China is sending warplanes into their self-declared air defense zone. Let me repeat that. Taiwan's self-declared airspace. It's Mm -hmm. not actually an officially recognized airspace. And if you look at it on a map, it's absurd and goes actually over part of mainland China. Um, Where Chinese planes have been flying have been on the very border of the self-declared zone. But basically, Taiwan is saying that China does not even have the freedom to navigate within their own airspace. And Taiwan is going to consider this a threat. Mm -hmm. It's it's absolutely absurd. And even uh, Western media such as CNN 
China and have to acknowledge that China is not actually violating any uh, international law. And yet the news reports keep coming out that China is increasing aggression against Taiwan, when in fact there's absolutely no evidence of that. Mm -hmm. And then um, lastly, this absurd RAND report uh, that has uh, talked about its uh, failure to get any of its five treaty allies, Australia, Japan, the Philippines, South Korea, and Thailand, to agree to host U.S. ground-based intermediate-range missiles that only have an offensive purpose. Mm. So not even Australia is agreeing to do this. Why, why do you think that is? It's because they don't actually perceive China to be a threat, mm -hmm. and that to actually accept these U.S. offensive missiles would be what would uh, jeopardize the security mm -hmm. for any country in Asia, that, not the United States. So it's an easy choice for the United States, who's constantly asking other countries to die for their own uh, hegemony. In the RAND report, it does conclude that Japan is the most likely to agree, although they they still say it's it's uh, improbable. Although you know, with all of the um, chaos that's going on now after Abe's assassination, who knows how the situation will change? Mm -hmm. But you know, I want to remind the listeners again: Japan has not been sovereign since World War II, and it's had fifty six thousand American troops stationed mm -hmm. in Okinawa ever since then, and they they don't have the say of those American troops leaving. Mm -hmm. Cynthia, let me ask you quickly about what we should expect from China uh, with regard to this proposed trip by Nancy Pelosi, the U.S. Speaker of the House, to Taiwan, and also over this uh, this new arms sale that the State Department has uh, approved to Taiwan. It, the uh, amount of the arms sale was something like $116 million. I don't remember exactly, but not very much. Um, but but Beijing it objected to to that sale being approved and also has said we really we really do not want to see Nancy Pelosi uh, visiting Taiwan. It would be the the highest ranking u s. official to visit the island in uh, many years. what What do you expect to happen over the next couple of months? and what response would you expect from Beijing if if the u s. does do something as provocative as sending Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan? Um, well, again, uh, the comments that are, uh, you know, going across, uh, Western media about China's, uh, warnings or threats about Pelosi's visit, they're, they're not, uh, you know, they're making it sound like they're going to shoot Pelosi's plane out of the sky if right. she like dares to fly to Taiwan. Yeah. That's not what's going on here because again, Taiwan is officially recognized as a part of China. Even the U.S. Department of State has this written on their own site. There are mm -hmm. only about 13 countries presently. Some of them have already bowed out, like the Solomon Islands. Mm -hmm. There are only about 13 countries who are extremely small countries that have absolutely no sovereignty and need to do whatever the United States demand them uh, for them to say. There's only that many countries that recognize Taiwan as a sovereign country. Nobody else dares to do it. The only exception is the, the Vatican Holy See. Um, so why, again, people should be asking, are the United States shipping weapons to Taiwan um, when it's, you know, to be used possibly against its officially recognized government? Does not, doesn't that seem like a violation of international law? And I would also have people uh, recall that it wasn't just Ukraine that went through their so-called revolution in 2014. Taiwan had their own, uh, called the Sunflower Movement, in 2014, along with Hong Kong's Umbrella uh, Revolution in 2014. Mm -hmm. 
a coincidence? I don't think so, um, because it was all funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, the NED. So just like in the case of Ukraine, uh, Taiwan's uh, movement was over an economic deal. There were protests and trying to sever ties with China economically, even though Taiwan is entirely dependent, its economy is entirely dependent on trade with China. And I would have people recall, when Ukraine got its independence in 1991 and became beholden to IMF, and then they severed their ties uh, with Russia in 2014, uh, pretty much fully, um, they what did that get Ukraine? It got them to the rank of the poorest country in all of Europe. Mm -hmm. So Taiwan really needs to wake up. China is its biggest trade partner. There is no benefit to the Taiwanese. And I would also like to explain to people that it's primarily the youth that are really aggressive on this uh, independence for Taiwan because they have been pumped with NED propaganda for a whole generation. But the older generation doesn't want this. And it's likely that the Kuomintang will be uh, voted back in uh, in two years' time. And that's why the United States knows that they have only a two-year window because much of the members of the Sunflower Movement became members of the new government, the Democratic Progressive Party of Taiwan, just like in Ukraine. After mm -hmm. the 2014 so-called revolution, they had a lot of these uh, people who uh, entered the Ukraine government, and they weren't really for making decisions that were in benefit of the Ukrainian people. So uh, the DPP is associated uh, with the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy, which is directly funded by the NED. People can look it up for themselves. The vice chairman of the Taiwan Foundation hey. for Democracy is the Minister of Foreign Affairs for Taiwan presently. We are going to have to wrap it up there, but thank you for drawing so many of those connections for us. I really appreciate it. That was Cynthia Chung. She's president and co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation. She writes for the Strategic Culture Foundation. You can find her work on both of those sites. And Cynthia, we'll talk to you again very soon. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We've got a lot to get into, but I also, John, wanted to uh, mention another little clip going around the internet of uh, this time, not Michael Bolton or John Bolton. Sorry. <laughs> Bolton. Oh my God. I haven't thought about Michael Bolton in such a long time. Michael Bolton, not talking about coups, John Bolton talking about coups. Right. And then the internet over the weekend discovered what I think is a clip from 2018. Yes of former CIA director James Woolsey yes. talking to Laura Ingram and having having a good giggle. Oh, yeah, it was hilarious, about, right? Uh, yeah, talking about her. And, and he says he basically directly makes the point that we stress on this show so often. Uh, he's asked, you know, have we ever interfered in foreign elections? And he says, oh, for sure, you know. Probably, yeah. In, Only in when Europe, it was necessary in the, in the late 1940s, where we had to keep the communists out, and then you know, Laura Ingram says, "But we don't do that now." And he goes, uh, well. ha -ha, "Only for the interest of democracy." Yeah, of course they're still doing it. Mm -hmm. Of course they, they are. didn't ever stop. Sure. Why would they have? Sure. Yeah. That's. I what, thought that. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, and you know, what what 
what makes me so angry is when news like this comes out, people are justifiably outraged Mm -hmm. and they take to Twitter and they complain and they post the clips and then the big muckety mucks, you know, the, the Mike Pompeo's and John Brennan's and Jim Wolsey's, they just continue to laugh like it's some big joke. I mentioned to you Mm -hmm. before uh, we started the show, uh, they laugh and they don't even discuss how many people are killed in the, in the course of these covert actions. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's an international crime. And then we're and then we're outraged at rumors that the Russians have uh, have interfered in in our election. Right. Outraged. How could this and and they appoint Jeff Wickman as the the czar of election uh, uh, non-interference in the office of the director of national intelligence? Come on. Mm -hmm. It's a joke. Mm hmm. It's yeah. a joke. We do this all the time, all over but the world. Our way of life and our people and our system of government matters. Right. We're important. Other people are just sort of, you know, pawns on a chessboard. I remember an African um, intelligence officer uh, on, a, on a, an official trip that I took with the CIA uh, telling me that uh, you Americans, you always promise us democracy, but the Chinese promise us food. Yeah. And, you know, what, what are they going to take? This is really the thing that that really leapt out to me at that that diplomat article that I was talking about in the last yeah. segment, um, where the the tone of the article is sort of like, "Hey guys, don't worry, China's China's missing a trick," and like, you know, sure, of course, yeah. giving giving weapons to countries, giving military aid, of course, yeah, that that creates relationships between some people in yeah. government and some people in another government. Is that what, you know, if you asked the people of these countries on the receiving end of that aid, if that's really what they would want, if See? those are the kinds of investments and that's the kind of largesse that they, they clamor for, right. that's going to make their lives better. I suspect a lot of people would say, you know what? No. What if you could, no. what if we could no. you know, build a road or develop our port or, or exactly. uh, build a, a cl- system of clinics and not like one big yeah. cardiac hospital, the, the last trip all the time. The last trip I took to Africa, I went to Djibouti as mm-hmm. one of the stops mm-hmm. and, uh, and we were driving to Somalia and I said, wow, this is a nice road, right? I mean, Djibouti is one of the poorest places on earth yeah. and they had like a, a U.S. style interstate highway. And the guy said, the driver, he said, yeah, the Chinese built it. Mm-hmm. Just like every highway in Yemen before the Saudis blew them all up, every highway in Yemen was built by the Chinese. There's even a memorial to Chinese workers who died uh, while building Yemen's system of highways. Mm-hmm. You know, you ask these countries, what would you rather have? Would you rather have um, democracy and weapons or would you rather have a, a new port? Mm-hmm. Well, they'll take the new port. Yeah. So it's it, this is something that American political officials and and senior diplomats have never been able to understand. Mm-hmm. They've just not understood it, especially in these countries that are so poor that Anything would help. They just don't understand why they don't want our weapons, that they would rather have hospitals and roads and airports and ports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, I, I just don't understand it myself. Um, do we have John on the line? Not yet. Not yet. OK, we're, we're waiting for John Jeter. We're having a little bit of technical trouble, mm-hmm. but we're going to get John John Jeter too uh, soon, mm-hmm. I should say. Um, 
what else is going on? We've got uh, we've got a lot going on in uh, in uh, domestic issues too. There was something that we were going to talk about at the start of the show that we really didn't have time to talk about, uh, and that is um, a death. I'm going to say at the hands of the police. Certainly in police custody. That's a, and, that's uh, a better yeah, way yeah. to say it. Mm-hmm. In police custody. It's a, a woman who was arrested. I don't even know what she was arrested for. Do you? And she. Uh, it was. Yeah. Her family had called. Her family had called the paramedics, right? They called 911. Yeah. Because they, she was having some kind of mental, mental health crisis. Yeah. They had done it before and paramedics had arrived. Yes. But this time. Police arrived. This is according to a Washington Post uh, write-up of this story of this young woman in uh, Georgia whose name was Brianna Brianna Greer. Uh, Yeah, so this time sheriff's deputies arrive at their home in Sparta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. They say they smell alcohol on Greer's breath. Uh, She says she's been drinking, and they put her in a patrol car, uh, put her in handcuffs, and tell her they are going to, this is her, her father said, tell, tell her they're going to detain her for intoxication, which I don't think is, you can be drunk. Sure. I guess you're in not supposed to be drunk in public, but she's like on her, you know, she's in front of her own house. Yeah. Well, I gather, uh, yeah, but they arrived at their home. So clearly she's at their home. Anyway, uh, she was supposed to get medical treatment the next morning. Uh, instead, the police are sticking with the line that she fell out of the car. Yeah. Now, mind you. She's cuffed behind her back, mm-hmm. and you can't open a police co- car's back door from mm-hmm. the inside. You can't do it. Yeah, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. No. Uh, and so, yeah, you have, once again, a family looking for answers in Georgia to a very mysterious death. It doesn't, seem, it doesn't make any sense uh, how this woman died. You mm-hmm. also have to wonder... You know, will we be talking about this if if paramedics had arrived instead of police? Right. Right. Which is a theme, of course, we also keep returning to. Yes, indeed. Which is that it's not that there is necessarily no no role for uh, detectives and investigators in, in a society. But surely, you know, there are quite a lot of situations that you have police responding to that they don't need to be responding yeah. to, that people with other kinds of training can be responding to. That's right. Yeah. Hey, there was something else that I wanted to raise, too. Um, and this is also from the Washington Post this morning. Tomorrow, Donald Trump is coming to Washington. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time that he's coming to Washington since he left the night before Joe Biden's inauguration. Mm-hmm. He hasn't been here in over a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And he's coming for a meeting at something called the America First Policy Institute. I actually had never heard of this think tank. Right. So-called think tank um, until today when I read this in the post. But apparently it's this think tank that came up with the policy plan for Donald Trump's second term, which of course was never implemented because he didn't get a second term. But now he's coming up to discuss an update of this plan, which would constitute the Republican Party's platform for the 2024 election. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Some people are making a lot of money at that think tank. It's my understanding that we have John Jeter on the line. Mm -hmm. And so I want to go into into a little bit of of an introduction. Uh, There's been a lot going on in terms of of foreign affairs over the weekend. Russian forces attacked the port of Odessa over the weekend, just hours after the Ukraine-Russia agreement on grain exports. 
In response, President Zelensky has asked the United States for an additional four HIMARS or HIMARS, mm-hmm. they're, they're high mobility artillery rocket systems to use against the Russians. The U.S. already has sent 16 HIMARS to, uh, to uh, Ukraine and may be unable to provide more. It, it seems, at least temporarily, that we're out of them. Mm-hmm. Two American citizens were killed in the Donbass this weekend, according to the State Department. Uh, meanwhile, the Turkish military... Uh, at the end of last week, fired rockets in four separate strikes at a tourist resort in Iraq, killing eight people and injuring another 23. The Turkish government blamed the PKK or Kurdistan Workers Party, which they always do. The PKK is a terrorist group that it's been fighting for decades. But both the Iraqi and the American governments said that the attack was carried out by the Turks and not by the PKK. Iraq said that it reserves the right to respond. We can talk about that in a minute. You also may recall that in April, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan was ousted in a no-confidence vote. Well, Khan blamed his loss on massive voter fraud. He blamed the CIA. He blamed the State Department. He blamed Islamic extremism and organized crime. And he vowed to return to power. Last week, Khan's party scored a huge upset victory, winning 15 out of 20 legislative seats in Punjab's municipal elections. Meanwhile, the government of uh, Shabazz Sharif, it's a coalition government. It's weak and it's disorganized. Parliament's in chaos. And it looks like in the coming few weeks, Imran Khan could be prime minister of Pakistan again. So John Jeter is joining us. John is a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. He's an author. He has more than 20 years of journalistic experience, and he's the former Washington Post bureau chief and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents. Welcome back, John. Thank you, John. So glad to have you. Let's begin with this strike uh, on the port of Odessa. Uh, Clearly, Odessa is one of the most important and most strategic sites in Ukraine. It's vital to the Ukrainian economy, and I suppose I understand the military strategy of striking it, but I don't understand the political strategy of striking it within hours of this grain deal. Can you explain it to us? I wish I could. I, uh, you know, I, I don't have much military uh, knowledge, and I usually turn to someone like Scott Ritter, <laughs> who guide me through things like this, and he's been banned from. YouTube. So I've had a complete loss. I I find it baffling. Um, you know, the Russians, from everything I understand, the Russians don't they don't do shock and awe, right? They no. Into the theater of war. And That's right. I don't know if it was just a, a miscalculation or was it a strike that was planned before this agreement was reached, and they just carried it out. There wasn't much communication between the battlefield and the negotiators. I have no idea. It, it seems aberrant uh, from everything I know about the Russian military and Vladimir Putin, uh, and it doesn't seem—it's not a great look for Russia, which, you know, is, is losing the PR war in the West, mostly because they've not engaged it, uh, but— yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. It seems out of character, and I, I wish I wish we had access to people like Scott Ritter to maybe help explain it. Yeah, Scott's also had a, an ongoing feud with uh, with Twitter. They seem to not like his opinions. Um, the the U.S. John has 
spent billions of dollars on military aid to Ukraine since the war began in February. And that's in addition to what other NATO and European countries have sent. But the Ukrainians are now asking for these these HIMARS. The Washington Post calls these systems among the most sophisticated and reliable that the U.S. has. And like I said a few minutes ago, we've already sent 16 of these systems to Ukraine. Uh, The Ukrainians claim that they can actually push the Russians back if they have more of these doggone things. That sounds like wishful thinking to me. And I just wanted your opinion on on what the media have been telling us over the last week or so. We're getting it from the, the head of MI6. We're getting it from the head of the CIA that the Russians are are tired. They're short on uh, personnel. They're short on ammunition. And this is the period where the Ukrainians are going to start making progress in pushing the Russians back or pushing them out. This seems like wishful thinking to me. Like you, I'm not a military analyst, but uh, but I am kind of a student of the of the press and a student of government. And what I'm not seeing on the ground, I'm certainly seeing uh, on the talk shows on CNN and MSNBC and BBC. What do you think about this? What do you think about what the what the press is telling us about the status of this war? I, I don't. I don't even think it's. I don't even think it's wishful thinking. I think it's an outright lie. Uh huh. Everything I've read and heard. Um, particularly coming from European sources. Uh, sources closer to the action of that actually uh, in Ukraine uh, is that as recently as just, I think, two weeks ago, that Ukraine was suffering as many as 600 casualties a day, of which 150 to 200 per day were deaths. Uh, and so I don't, I don't see these uh, IMARs or however you pronounce them. I don't see how that could possibly be a game changer. I can't, I also, I have to admit, I can't understand why the United States can't produce them since it seems like their objective with this war, or one of their main objectives, is merely to sell more weapons. So yeah. they have uh, have this available, unless maybe they're just, I, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, this, I, I think they're just trying to keep, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't have access to these people, uh, you know, at the White House and the administration. But I can only assume from everything I've heard uh, reported in uh, other sort of alternative sources uh, that they're just trying to sort of stoke this narrative, you know, bleed it for all their which are the words, but to um, ring it for all that they can, squeeze all they can out of this narrative yeah. uh, in a war that, that the Ukrainians are clearly losing and losing badly. Uh, there's no, I mean, I just, I just had this conversation the other day if Henry Kissinger, right, the, the the greatest living war criminal, I think we can all <laughs> definitely. He said, "There's no way forward here. You're going to have to, you know, uh, regroup, and you know, Ukraine's going to have to surrender some land." If Henry Kissinger says that, my God, I think we should all listen, right? Like he knows, he knows what he's talking about, and so I, I just, you know, I'm baffled in these. Uh, I'm, I'm baffled by. Oh, let me back up. I, I don't think I think the greatest service we can do the American people uh, is to uh, put more, to have more confidence in 
our leaders than, than, than we should. By which I mean, I don't think they have a clue what they're doing. I think they're just throwing stuff against, against the wall mm-hmm. with sticks because this doesn't make sense. Of course, they can't. They absolutely cannot say, you know, we messed up. You know, we should never have encouraged this war in Ukraine. It's gone very badly, and, you know, we need to regroup. They can't do that. So I, I, I'm just guessing they're trying to keep this thing going to squeeze every last drop of, you know, um, uh, political capital that they can out of it. Yeah. John, uh, two more Americans were killed in Ukraine this weekend. I think that makes three so far. I'm not 100% positive, but I think it's three. Lots more Americans are fighting with the so-called International Brigade. Some of these are former U.S. soldiers. Other, others are mercenaries. Some are guys with nothing better to do or something to prove. Do you think this is going to be a problem in the future in relations between the U.S. and Russia or the U.S. and Ukraine? Do you think there will be a problem when these guys eventually return to the United States? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure they're going to return to the United States. And I think it was Lavrov, the foreign minister in Russia, who said that, you know, we can execute these people. You know, we capture these people in battle. Uh, they're not covered by the Geneva Convention, I think is what he said. And, you know, we have carte blanche. It's not a war crime. Execute these people. They're mercenaries. Uh, And so I, I, and and, and also, and this is something that Lavrov and both Putin and Lavrov have been very clear about, uh, they don't care what the West thinks anymore. They've they've, they've Mm -hmm. closed off all channels of communication. At least they said they have closed off all channels of communication with the United States and with the West. And so, uh, yeah, I think this is, I think this is a part of a bigger problem, which is that um, the United States has no relationship to, uh, you know, a nuclear power. Um, and yeah, good point. She has also had a close relationship with China. So, yeah, this is, this is, a, this is part of a much, much bigger problem, uh, which is that they have, uh, we have American mercenaries fighting against Russia uh, in a war that can't possibly be won by Ukraine. Yeah, uh, I think that bears that bears everybody understanding. I really do. Let's talk about Turkey for a minute. Um, one of my favorite topics. Uh, so Turkey's involved militarily in Syria. It's involved militarily in Iraq. It's got this constant, never-ending fight going on against the PKK. It's threatening Greece's Aegean islands. This attack on an Iraqi resort was naked aggression. It's not terribly unusual for the Turks. Um, but it's one thing for the Turks to attack the, B- the PKK bases along the border in Zaho, for example, up in, in far northern Iraq. It's another thing for them to attack a tourist resort and to kill civilians. And then when they do it and they get caught, they blame the PKK. What do you think this attack means for Turkish-Iraqi relations? The, the Iraqis said that they reserve the right to respond. What do you think that means, if anything? I, you know, again, you know, with the disclaimer, I, I'm not any kind of military expert, I have a hard time seeing uh, Iraq responding militarily, but I do too. at the same time, I have a hard time seeing them uh, not responding at all, and I don't know what that means, right? Like, um, 
uh, like you said, the, 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 the attacks by Turkey in northern Iraq, uh, I think targeting Kurds, uh, those attacks are constant. But, yeah. you know, it's one thing to attack, uh, 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 you know, the Kurdish people in their hamlets, you know, in the north that are fairly isolated. But it's another thing to attack uh, a, a civilian installation, a, a, a tourist resort. And so, I, I don't know. It's very dangerous. Um, uh, Turkey seems, uh, I, I can't say what I want to say. I guess he seems a little bit disoriented uh, in yeah. the last uh, I would agree with that. Month. Um, and, and I don't know if this is part of that or not, but that was, uh, that seems to be a terribly um, misguided, unwise uh, move because it, Further, I think it, it will um, turn much of the their Arab neighbors against Turkey, uh, um, uh, if nothing else. I would agree. This is going to be a problem. There's going to be fallout from this. Just for a minute, let's talk about Pakistan. I, I know that, that you're not a Pakistan expert, neither am I, but this is just such a fascinating series of developments. It looks like Imran Khan could actually find himself as prime minister again just months after he was ousted. One of the reasons he lost his position was that he blamed Pakistan's problems on everybody but himself. He's always been like this. Always. For decades, the Pakistani military, the most powerful force in the country, had finally had enough. They withdrew their support and he lost. But his party is far better organized than the coalition that pushed him out. Should we expect, do you think, to see him back soon? And what do you think relations will be like between the U.S. and Pakistan if he's accusing the CIA and the State Department of ousting him in the first place? Fascinates me as well. I, I, you know, I, one of the, one of the and, and, uh, what's the Chinese curse? you live in interesting times. That's right. Of those times, right? Uh, Khan, you know, I, I, you know, obviously, I don't, you know, like you said, I'm not a Pakistan expert, but I follow the story relatively closely. I know that that Khan is tremendously popular, and and yes, despite I think what you put out are his uh, sort of foibles, his weaknesses. But I know that he turned out after the coup, he was, he turned out, I don't know what the numbers were, but you can see pictures. And he turned out a lot of people in the streets protesting his, his ouster. And so it seems like he's about to be president again. I don't know how dangerous that situation is. I would imagine it's fairly uh, right with danger. But at the same time, you know, um, he is tremendously popular, so I wonder if maybe that won't give provide him with some protection from the Pakistan military. But yet, this this maneuvering in the Punjab, and as I understand, as I understand it from what I've read, uh, that was key because that's where uh, that region was the uh, center of power for the forces that opposed him. So yeah. ousted some of those that leadership, and so yeah, it sounds like things are very good for Imran Khan. What does he do on his first day in office if this does proceed? Man, I, just, huh. I say, you know, I would say this: it does seem like, and Putin gave this speech, uh, I think a week ago. I, I I I heard it maybe a week ago, where he says, you know, the United States really the West, but particularly the United States really made this great calculation miscalculation in ginning up this war because what it's done is it has accelerated the shift from west to east. 
And so now this multipolar world is coming into focus, you know, largely because the, the United States and the West has played their hand. And this seems very much a part of it because if Khan was ousted because he refused to support uh, Ukraine and the West in this war against Russia, well, he has absolutely no incentive to now support yeah. Ukraine and the West or, or to support uh, the, the West in any endeavor at this point, right? His, that, that lies with um, the East, Russia and China, uh, the BRICS countries. You know, that seems to be his best bet. So, you know, it just seems like this. Fisher is widening sort of exponentially by the day. And Pakistan, you know, which is what I believe a nuclear armed power with, you know, uh, yes, a lot of very poor people. Man, it just seems like Pakistan is a big wild card in that reorganization. Like, you know, what are they going to do? So, you know, the con story, it fascinates me. You know, one of the things that he said, I I saw in the the paper over the weekend, was that uh, former President Zardari, who's the widower of Benazir Bhutto, who was the prime minister assassinated uh, during the campaign, um, Zardari uh, has, has tried to gin up interest in the military to keep him out. Well, Zardari has this reputation of being the most corrupt of, of a a group of very, very corrupt politicians. And I'll tell you, I went to see Benazir Bhutto one time in Dubai. She was in exile in Dubai. And I went with a couple of people from, uh, from my former uh, organization and while we were sitting in the living room talking to her, a car pulled up. You could hear this car pulled up. And she said, if he's coming with another Bentley, I'm going to flip out. And I said, another Bentley? You make $40,000 a year in one of the poorest countries in the world. She lived in this $5 million beachfront mansion in Dubai. And then he's pulling up with another Bentley. And this is the guy who's criticizing Imran Khan. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just an aside. <laughs> so a little further afield, John, I wanted to ask you about some of the fallout from the January 6th committee hearings. The most recent hearing was in prime time, and it was, to me, the most fascinating. Um, most of the anti-Trump rhetoric came from former Trump White House officials who testified. The other takeaway is that Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri is a coward. Does any of this, do you think, matter electorally? The Democrats are going crazy over what they're, uh, what the committee has developed, but Republicans don't even seem to be watching the hearings or paying any attention. This is not at all what the Watergate hearings looked like or the Iran-Contra hearings looked like. How do you think things play out with this committee? Does it matter? I, I have to admit, I'm not terribly interested and I, I I mean I pay attention but not closely. But I, I just and maybe you can maybe I can ask you the question, but uh I just I don't understand what the objective of the January sixth commission is. Mm-hmm. They haven't told us. No. They haven't told us what the objective is. And and that's led to this speculation that it's you know one of two things. Either they're trying to gin up enough evidence to make criminal referrals to the Justice Department. Or they don't have an objective other than trying to embarrass Donald Trump. And 
just, I just have to think. I mean, I, you know, again, I don't know. I just, I have to think that Joe Biden is calling uh, the, the commission and the chair every day saying, "Don't do this," right? Because, I, you know, again, you know, I, I'm not. I, I just, I tuned out a lot. You know, um, a lot that comes out of Washington sounds like all the adults in the Charlie Brown cartoon. Mm-hmm. Right, it's just gibberish. But I have to think that Joe Biden is saying, "Don't do this," because if I was a Republican, which is hard to imagine, <laughs> I would be thinking, "Well, the first thing we're going to do when we get in office is we're going to attack Hunter Biden and Joe Biden right. is, uh, you know, for his allowing this, this influence peddling, uh-huh. you know, and his president son. I mean, and, and and I don't, I don't think." I don't think they would stop it just sort of these, this, 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 these, uh, you know, uh, show horse hearings. I yeah. don't think they would stop. I think there would be some indictments. I think some people would go to jail as maybe as hard as that is to imagine. So I, I you know, I just, I just seems like it. Again, you know, the leadership just throwing stuff up against the wall to see what sticks. But I don't, you know, I, I think even, you know, doing. Going too far with Steve Bannon, I think, is going to just inflame the Republican base. Maybe mm-hmm. that's not a that's a reason to be afraid to do something. But if your hands are just as dirty as Donald Trump, and I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm not defending him at all. I, I, from my lawyer friends, they tell me that uh, there is evidence that to support, uh, you know, uh, an indictment against Donald Trump. But uh, that's just that's yeah. Uh, I mean, you're handing the Republicans. Uh, you know, and Uzi to fight you with if you do that. So I, I don't know. The January 6th commission is one of the most baffling things I've ever seen come out of Washington. And that's, that's saying something. Let me ask you one last January 6th question. Uh, the reporting from yesterday and today seems to suggest that the committee may be preparing to subpoena Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Ginny Thomas sent dozens of text messages on January 6th, uh, 2021 to White House leaders and to conservative big shots, uh, mostly in the media, urging them to pressure Congress to not certify Joe Biden's elections. Um, Ginny Thomas is a private citizen. So, first of all, what does it matter what she was texting to friends of hers in positions of authority? And secondly, um, how does this play out for her husband? Supreme Court justices in the past have resigned over a lot less than than this. Um, but there doesn't seem to be any indication that Clarence Thomas cares what his wife says or does in her, in her own private time. Yeah. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like this entire show, I just sort of, you know, I just kind of shrug my shoulders and say, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Clarence, Clarence Thomas is one of the most um, uh, befuddling. Oh my gosh! Yes, life. Like you just don't know what's going on in that dead skull of his. And you're right. I mean, I mean, it doesn't seem like he could be removed for anything uh, that his wife did. Uh, and can he be pressured? He doesn't seem to respond to pressure. Right? He seems uh, uh, fairly. I, I don't know. I get the I get the feeling Clarence Thomas is just sort of a a wind up dog. They put the battery back and push him out there, and you know he doesn't he doesn't see gray, nor does he want to. So 
I just, I, you know, again, I'm sorry to be so subtle clueless on this on this particular program, but I, I don't know where this goes, you know. Uh, and, and the thing is, too, and this seems ridiculous, I know, but I still think it's part of the conversation, which is how much can you beat up on this black judge, right, in right. the current climate, even one who is as big of an imbecile and a and, and a threat as Clarence Thomas, right? I mean, it's not exactly like black people are going to protect him, but at the same time, you know, the hypocrisy, particularly the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. is dealing with my profile. I mean, you can't put all of this on Clarence Thomas because he looks like a racist, which, you know, it's, 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 it's true, but not particularly, not the most salient point when it comes to, to Clarence Thomas. So I, I, I I don't even know if I want to be a fly on the wall right. uh, in the room of that conversation. <laughs> well, John Jeter, thanks for joining us. John is an author and two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist with more than 20 years of journalistic experience. He's a former Washington Post bureau chief and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back. Fits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Europe and the United States are struggling with high inflation and high fuel prices. A gallon of gas is averaging $4.69 here in the United States, but it's double that in many Western European countries, and it's over $10 a gallon in some. And to make matters even more difficult, the European Union has drastically reduced the importation of Russian gas and will likely end it soon. The European Commission has ordered a 15% across-the-board reduction in EU gas consumption by next spring, and the German government has actually urged citizens to begin stockpiling firewood for the coming winter. All of that has led to a renewed interest in nuclear power, especially in France, which already gets 80% of its electricity from nuclear power. Is this a temporary situation, or are the Europeans regressing on the nuclear issue? And things are no better here in the United States. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission recently approved the construction of a nuclear fuel and waste site in Andrews County, Texas, an action that, if implemented, will bring with it a whole host of additional problems. We're joined by Kevin Camps, Kevin is the radioactive waste watchdog and radioactive waste specialist at Beyond Nuclear. Welcome back, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me. Always good to have you, Kevin. I've got to ask you about a paper that was recently published by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. It was entitled, Why Europe is Looking to Nuclear Power to Fuel a Green Future. Uh, Tell us why such a thing is simply not possible. Oh, man, you know, (laughs) the timing on that paper was that it came out, I believe, in February and even before the war in Ukraine began. There have been recent developments just in those past several months that kind of, you know, call that whole 
premise into question, right in France itself, actually the figure is more like 70%. It ah. may have at one point been 75% nuclear electricity in France, maybe 20 years ago. But um, it's more like 70%. And what's interesting about the 70%, about a decade ago, there was a referendum in France to lower that figure to 50%. And they were supposed to get it done by 2025. Mm. Macron gave a postponement. And so now it's 50% nuclear reduction down to 50% by the year 2035. And what's really telling, though, here's the here's the punchline. Um, because of financial collapse of Electricité de France, the nuclear utility, because of this heat wave that began in the spring in Europe, really, unseasonably hot temperatures that raised river water temperatures, which is the cooling water supply for oh, reactors in France. Right. And because of unforeseen corrosion in safety-significant systems in French reactors, what I'm getting at is that that figure for nuclear electricity in France was lowered in the spring, late spring, to 37% of France's electricity coming from nuclear because they had to shut reactors because of safety problems. They had to shut reactors more recently because of the heat wave reducing the ability of the rivers to cool the reactors. And then this, about a month or two ago, this financial collapse of Electricité de France, which is not the first time that's happened either. So even in nuclear France, the poster child of how nuclear power can electrify a country, things are going very badly. And that will extend into the future. I mean, they are trying to build new reactors in France. The French nuclear industry is trying to build new reactors in England, in the U.K., in Finland, and they have a long track record of massive cost overruns, massive safety problems, and massive delays, all of which show that nuclear is not the way to go. You could waste a lot of time and a lot of money on nuclear, but the industry is so powerful that it lobbies for its way again and again and again. That's what's going on. You know, it, it seems to me like these problems are so clear cut. Why is it that country to country, we don't learn from each other. If the French are, are the, the world's primary spokespeople for nuclear power, and they're having these kinds of problems, why don't the Germans or the Americans or others say, oh, you know what? We thought this was a good idea, but look what's happening in France. It's actually not a good idea. We're going to have to do something else. Maybe we should do what the Danes are doing or the Dutch or the or the the uh, Icelanders and look at um, wind power, uh, look at, uh, you know, the Icelanders use their their geysers, their heated springs uh, to uh, to create energy. Why? Why is it nuclear or nothing in so many places? Yeah, actually, you know, there has been some damage done by this nuclear power lobby in Europe. But even then, the European Union Parliament vote to go forward with this financial subsidy for nuclear power and even natural gas as supposed climate mitigation that vote went down on July 6th. It was a very close vote. I, I mm. figure it was like 380 to 280. So you can see there were 280 votes against nuclear and natural gas. And it is coming from, you know, parliamentarians from Germany and from Denmark and from other countries where renewables are the future. Renewables are the present. So that's the hopeful part. So it's from Greta Thunberg at the grassroots all the way up to the national governments of the largest economy in the European Union, Germany, which mm -hmm. turned its back on nuclear. And why did that happen over the course of a few decades? Well, 
Chernobyl, and then Fukushima. Yeah. And that happened. You know, the Greens in Germany were anti-nuclear from their start in the yes. mid-1970s. The Social Democrats got there after Chernobyl. And then even the conservative parties of Germany after Fukushima. And the reason why? Because they lost major elections after Fukushima because of their pro-nuclear stance. And so they, they got it after that. If they wanted to survive politically in Germany, they had to take an anti-nuclear position. I understand that in many of the Northern European countries, um, solar power is just not going to work. It's, it's just not sunny enough for long enough uh, to make it cost effective. But a lot of these same countries have proven that wind power is cost effective. It does work. It's my understanding that Denmark now can go full days uh, where the entire country operates just on wind power. Uh, and and they don't need any other not not every single day but but some days they don't need any other source of electricity because the wind takes care of it. So so why why aren't other countries um, experimenting with alternative uh, sources of energy? What can they do to avoid what is eventually going to be a, a disaster? Because because uh, Europe is so heavily populated and densely populated, you know, even if there isn't an accident, what, there's nowhere to put the waste. Yeah, um, Scotland, Portugal as well have accomplished that feat where wind wow. is electrifying the entire country for days at a time under, you know, ideal conditions. So, I mean, the answer to your question, why, I think, again, is the nuclear powers, um, nuclear power industry's lobbying prowess. So in France, wow. on all in on nuclear, unfortunately, and the fight will continue there. But the French nuclear anti-nuclear movement is very strong too. That's how they got that referendum passed to reduce nuclear by a lot. And so that fight still goes on. The issue you mentioned about radioactive waste is a huge one. Finland is the lead in the world for building a repository, but only for its own waste, which is just a handful of reactors. Mm-hmm. Not for the rest of Europe, not for the rest of the world. And um, the way they get away with that in Finland and Sweden's not far behind is what they do is they bribe, they provide financial incentives to nuclear power plant host communities to just agree to be the waste dump. Mm-hmm. Seeing the wow. same dynamic in the United States, you mentioned the Texas dump. The nuclear industry in the United States, including the U.S. Department of Energy, is trying to bribe local communities in places like Texas, New Mexico, Native American reservations, to just agree to host what they call temporary interim consolidated interim storage facilities, which will become permanent for lack of anywhere else to send the waste to. And a lot of communities, including Texas, incredibly, Ruby Red, Texas, has now for the past year and a half said, no way, we're not going to do it. And they're fighting it in court as we speak. So that unsolved radioactive waste problem is as true now as it was decades ago. Let me ask you about this Texas situation, because I have to tell you, until I saw your press release or the press release from Beyond Nuclear, I hadn't heard anything about this this proposed site. Uh, Like you said, Ruby Red, Texas, and they're willing to to create a site that would be both a storage facility and a, and a dump that will poison the, the land in perpetuity. Uh, how did something like that happen and how did it remain beneath the radar for so long? Yeah. I mean, we have been fighting it for a very long time um, at the grassroots level, but yeah. the voice in the wilderness, but more recently about a year ago, a year and a half ago, 
that grassroots activism finally paid off when the state legislature of Texas, almost by unanimous vote, I mean, when's the last time that happened? That the yeah, wow. Republicans in the Texas legislature did anything together, but they said, no, we don't want this high-level waste. The governor signed the bill, and now it's in court. It's in federal court in three different circuit courts of appeal, including D.C., and we're fighting it. We're fighting it. State of Texas is fighting it. State of New Mexico, which is blue, liberal Democrat. Yeah. And the environmental movement's fighting it. And even an oil company, which is rallying oil and natural gas interests in the Permian Basin of Texas and New Mexico, are all fighting it. And their reason for the oil and gas industry is this is very much impinging on their businesses. And we're not allies with them. We're in environmental groups. We fight them, right? Right. On this issue, we have common cause, which is this is a really bad idea. And don't take it from us. Take it from the International Atomic Energy Agency, which has a report that says it's a really bad idea to store or dispose of high-level radioactive waste in an active oil and gas area. The Permian Basin is the most active oil and gas area in North America and perhaps even the world. It's competing with Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. So why would we... (laughs) pile all that risk into the same place? Yeah, good question. Um, Let me ask you how people can get involved with the work you're doing. Um, Tell us a little bit about Beyond Nuclear and what people can do. Yeah, well, Beyond Nuclear operates nationally and internationally on fighting nuclear power, um, fighting bad radioactive waste management ideas like these. So the best single place folks can go is our website, which is www.beyondnuclear.org. We're trying to shut down the 92 still operating atomic reactors in the United States and uh, trying to stop these environmentally unjust radioactive waste dumps targeted currently at Texas and New Mexico. But like I mentioned, the U.S. Department of Energy is about to start targeting places like Native American reservations. So this is one of the worst environmental injustices uh, in the works in this country. Indeed. Thank you, Kevin Camps, for joining us. Kevin is the radioactive waste watchdog and radioactive waste specialist at Beyond Nuclear. You're listening to Political Misfits. We'll take one more short break and come back. Stay tuned. We bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou with a few final headlines and something I noticed going on today, John. It looks like uh, 17 staffers yeah. in the U.S. Congress are protesting inside the Congress. They're, they're sitting in Senator Chuck Schumer's office to demand that he keep negotiating and demand that Democrats pass climate justice policy this year. Amazing. Yeah. Which is unheard of. Yeah. I mean, this is what they're saying. They're, uh, they're saying we've, um, to my knowledge, one of the staffers, a staffer for Cori Bush is saying, to my knowledge, this has never been done before protesting democratic leaders inside your, yeah. their own staff. Wow. Yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, wow. who knows? What you know, every going. once in a while, when I was working on Capitol Hill, every once in a while, there'd be a protest inside the building. Tell you the truth, it was usually code pink, mm-hmm. which I always got a kick out of. Right. 
Um, and then every once in a while, you know, the tea partiers would come and, and uh, make a ruckus and then leave after an hour or two. Mm-hmm. But to, to have staffers actually going into a member's office and protesting is dramatic. Yeah. Really dramatic. It is. It's pretty cool. I also didn't realize, you know, um, Ilhan Omar and AOC and Ayanna Presley and the rest of the squad got uh, quite a bit of attention for getting arrested for um, blocking a road to protest right. the Supreme Court Dobbs decision. And, you know, they do they get a lot of attention anyway. Right. Yeah, like we were we we are sometimes critical of AOC and sometimes sure. we think she's doing great. Right. But you can't deny that the the right wing does just fixate on some of them in particular, some members of the squad. So I missed oh, yes. it. When a bunch of staff from the Senate dining facility were striking about 10 days ago or, the, or protesting 10 days ago, and a couple of Congress people got arrested in the course of that strike. Wow, I didn't see that yeah, either. Yeah, I know. Andy Levin and uh, yeah, some other people. So, Oh, that, sympathies, that's kind of a big deal. Sympathies with them, too. Yeah, there there have been layoffs, I guess, and, uh, and they are really tired of the uh, insecurity. Wow. Of, uh, of their jobs right now from the Senate dining you know, contractor. People like those who work in the in the House and Senate dining rooms mm-hmm. or employees of the Office of the Architect of the Capitol or the maintenance people, the grounds people. Capitol Hill couldn't function without those people. Yeah. It couldn't function. Nowhere can function without those people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this is the uh, don't collect the garbage for, you know. Yeah, two exactly. Weeks and see what happens. We'll all be eaten by rats. Yeah, we seriously. Yeah. Uh, there's a little bit of breaking news um, coming from Dallas, too. First, I, I saw on CNN shots fired inside Dallas uh, Love Field Airport. Mm-hmm. Now they're saying that a woman did in, indeed fire a handgun inside the airport and she was shot by police. Uh, don't yeah. know if she's if she's dead or not, but uh, wow. And don't know why she pulled out a gun and started shooting. Nope. It's just now happening. Um. I have a story that I hadn't seen okay, good. that grabbed me. Uh, I mean, if you've got something. <laughs> yeah, this I have is something just, too. Well, just I didn't see this. This is a local news report uh, from out of, I think, somewhere in Indiana. Yeah, out of Indianapolis. A report on um, the Hertz rental car company hmm. falsely accusing hundreds of people of stealing cars. This is a serious problem. I've read about this. This is uh, Hertz says it files more than 3,300 police reports every year, alleging a customer stole one of its rental cars. I mean, all of those are not false, Uh, but I do think there are hundreds, hundreds uh, who say that they, you know, they were picked up by police. They spent days, weeks, months Mm -hmm. in jail. Uh, if, uh, after having been accused of stealing one of these cars, uh, one of the rental car companies mm-hmm. cars, uh, the example that this story leads with is a man whose identity was stolen. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's, it's a different driver's license number, but you know, whatever the rest of the information matched his, right. it was obviously the wrong guy. He says, if Hertz had, if Hertz had spent like two minutes mm-hmm. looking into this, they would mm-hmm. have seen that I was never in this area. I mm-hmm. never rented a car from them. Uh, but he, you know, he spent a night in jail. And so, yeah, I guess hundreds of people are saying they were falsely arrested after Hertz filed police reports involving um, stolen cars. Outrageous. I mentioned to you before the show started, there was a piece in the uh, New York Post about this flashy, loud um, pastor. Yes. In uh, in Brooklyn. He was preaching in Canarsie mm-hmm. yesterday and was live streaming. uh He calls himself a bishop. He's It's a, it's a one man church. Actually, too. It's he and his wife. 
So he, uh, he was preaching in Canarsie, and while it was being live-streamed, uh, three hooded gunmen came in mm-hmm. to the church, and you, you, you can see the, the pastor, he's preaching, and then he says, all right now, all right now, all right now, mm-hmm. and he lays down on the ground, and these guys rob him. Now, the New York Post said they robbed him of $400,000 worth of jewelry that I he mean, was wearing, asking. big, heavy gold cross and diamonds and all kinds of stuff. CNN is now saying it was more than a million dollars of jewelry that he was wearing. And after he was robbed and these these gunmen just walked right out, got into a car and drove off. Mm -hmm. um, The pastor drove himself in his Rolls Royce to the police department to report that he had some people are really asking for it. (laughs) I think these uh, these robbers have helped him on his spiritual journey, right? You know, hard, hard for a rich man to get into heaven, as, right. as I hear, John. It's so like putting a should, camel through the eye of a needle. He should probably be thanking them. <laughs> Can I tell you a story from this hurt story, John? Please. Sorry, this is one of the one of the cases that they highlight. This WTHR from Indiana, a man named Julius Burnside rented a Hertz car in Georgia, paid for an extension. Is according to this report, despite having a receipt showing he paid for it all. Um, Burnside said Hertz reported the car stolen, erased his extensions, backdated the due date of his rental and told police he'd never extended or paid after seven months in jail. He accepted a plea deal to get out and uh, and later fought to have the guilty plea withdrawn and prosecutors dropped all charges. Oh, I'll tell you what. He's got a serious lawsuit. I have a dear friend who, who just passed away suddenly from a heart attack recently, but he rented a, a truck from no, Hertz. He spent three and a half months in jail after the same thing. He'd fi- filed an extension and the poli- you know, Hertz said, no, you didn't. You didn't pay for it. Well, okay, they, sorry, need, go they on. need to be prosecuted. Yeah. This friend of mine rented a truck from Hertz and it had a, a lift gate mm-hmm. and uh, it was faulty. And when he turned it on to lift it, it went up halfway and then it fell really quickly and hard and it cut his big toe off <laughs> and he lost his toe and they would not agree to a settlement. He had to actually go to trial. Wow. To make them pay for his big toe being completely sheared off. Wow. Yeah, Hertz is a terrible company. They've got a, you know, these guys need that woman who uh, managed to get managed to get Geico to pay up for her getting HPV. And yeah, then seriously, car, right? the rental car. Remember that? Yes, yes, that's the kind of advocate Man. that these guys need. Because this is unbelievable. Rental car companies are just, you know, the worst generally. The worst. But holy cow. I hope he has a good attorney because it sure sounds like he's got a, a Fourth Amendment suit there. I mean, these are people, there's a story after story of people suit. losing their jobs, of course, because that's what happens when you're stuck in jail and you can't get out, whether mm-hmm. you've been correctly accused or falsely accused. Mm-hmm. People losing their homes, people using custody of their children. Sure. I mean, yeah. unbelievable. This is a disaster. All right, guys. Well, we're on the case now. <laughs> I'm going to follow we're, it. We're on, we're on to you, Hertz. We're going to pay attention to this. I think that's all we've got time for, John. I want to say thanks to our guests, of course. Thanks to the producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 